Welcome to the Night Parlor. Welcome back to the Night Parlor. I'm your host, Joshua Rex. This afternoon, I'll be speaking with the painter and installation artist, Brian Driscoll. Brian received his BA in visual art from Columbia in 2013 and an MFA in painting and drawing from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in 2018. He has completed residencies at the Oxbow School of Painting and Sculpture in Saugatuck, Michigan, the Vermont Studio Center in Johnston, Vermont, and the School of Visual Art in New York City. His work, a pro provocative mix of nudes, comics, childhood ephemera, wallpaper, saturated color, and delicate sculpture has been exhibited nationally in solo and group exhibitions and is collected internationally. I also had the honor of sharing an art studio uh, with Brian for several years in the early 2000s. Brian Driscoll, thank you for joining me in the night parlor. Yeah, thanks for having me. Incidentally, I heard that they raised the Cook Building in downtown Sandusky where we shared our studio. Is this true? Yes, yes, it is no longer there. Um, a couple came in and bought the building and they were going to remodel it into kind of what sounded like a little like mini mall type thing. And they started the construction on it and the whole front facade started falling off. So uh, the building was in such disrepair that they had to basically just tear the whole thing down. And I believe they're planning to rebuild it. I haven't been down there in a long time, so they may have started construction on it again now. But uh, from what I've heard, they're planning on rebuilding it. Not exactly the same, but they're trying to keep some of the elements of the original building just so it has a little bit of that feel. But um, but yeah, it's a it's a pit right now. <laughs> it's it's kind of it was kind of sad to see. But I also feel, you know, like downtown Sandusky, anytime a big storm comes through anymore, a building collapses, you know, the state theater collapsed. There was another building right on Water Street, like, you know, half a block away that had fallen down a couple years prior. And I think everything, you know, there was such a, there's a period of time where everything just kind of sat, you know, not necessarily vacant, but with cheap $100 art studios in it and no money being put into the building that like, yeah, it just fell apart after a while. So. Yeah, it's part of the charm, but it also, yeah, the lack of preservation is gonna cause things like that to happen. Oh, that's too bad. I'm glad to hear that they're gonna build it at least, or they're talking about building it to, to be in line to some degree with the other buildings down there because it's still historic and nice. And uh, I wanna start today by asking you a little bit about your art story. When did it start uh, and how has it evolved over the course of your life? I mean, I started drawing when I was a kid. You know, I mean, as children, we all draw. We all, you know, have our crayons and like scribble or whatever when, you're, when your parents are trying to like shut you up and keep you busy. You know, I don't know. When, it, when I was younger, my grandmother was a school teacher and she used to bring home the old paper from her bulletin boards, you know, like the big sheets of like colored paper um, you know, when she would change them out every month, she'd bring the old rolls home and, you know, I would sit down in her basement and, you know, draw on them for something to do. Cause 
usually on the weekends, you know, my parents work during the week. And then on the weekends, you know, I would be home on like Saturday. And then Sundays after church, I would go over to my grandparents' house and my parents would just have like a day for themselves. So I would spend a lot of time just down in their basement drawing. And, you know, I think it's kind of funny because now, you know, I do a lot of really large scale drawings on similar type paper that, you know, like really is a callback to that, that I don't know, I didn't necessarily realize that's what I was doing until that's what I was doing. And it's like, oh my God, here I am eight years old again, you know? But yeah, so I became interested in drawing, you know, at a young age and continued doing it. I took some art classes in high school. I, I went to a fairly conservative, awful, you know, Midwestern rural high school where I didn't necessarily fit in. And the art classes were the few places where I actually could do something that I enjoyed doing. And, um, you know, that kind of, I don't know, you know, I became more interested in it that way and experimented with more different media and things. At 18, after I graduated, I went off to the University of Toledo for a brief period of time where I thought I was going to major in photography. And I took several art classes there. And I had a professor who really disliked me because her name was Deborah and I accidentally called her Deb once and that was it. So I remember my final critique in her class that semester when she told me that I would never make it as an artist. And, you know, at like 19 years old, that like absolutely crushes your hopes and dreams. And shortly after I wound up dropping out of school and taking a job drawing portraits on the midway of the local amusement park, Cedar Point. And it was like, screw you, look at me, I'm an artist, I'm selling these drawings, even though they're these awful, you know, pastel portraits that you do in 15 minutes, and they all pretty much look the same, even though they're different people, and there's, like, no, no ideas behind them whatsoever, but, you know, I mean, at least I was, like, selling some drawings and, like, doing something that I kind of loved at the time, you know, and then life just kind of gets in the way. I started working a lot more and not creating a lot of art and, you know, but it was still like in the back of my head that this was something that I really wanted to do. And I kept trying to find a way to make it happen. You know, and things would happen where like, there'd be some businesses that would like buy a couple of my pieces to hang up. Um, you know, there were like some bars and things that would hang some of my stuff up, you know, kind of like the coffee shop type idea, but you know, like, and like gay bars or whatever. And, you know, I, I, kept plugging away at it for a while. And I got to a point where it was almost like, I'm gonna have to give up on this. You know, like you've been doing this for so long, nothing is really happening. You know, like maybe this isn't for you. And finally I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna go back to school. I'm gonna get an associate degree in business and go manage at Chipotle and that's gonna be my life. And I started taking classes at Cuyahoga Community College. I was doing really well there. And then all of a sudden I got a, email from Columbia University saying, hey, come check us out. We're looking for transfer students from, you know, the larger community colleges in the area. We think you might be a good fit. And I laughed at it because like, that's ridiculous. You know, like I grew up on a small farm in Ohio. People where I'm from don't go to Ivy League schools. And like the teachers at my high school absolutely didn't believe that I would go to an Ivy League school, you know, <laughs> like, so I was like, yeah, this is a joke. And then a week later, I got a letter from Cornell basically saying the same thing. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like I've been approached by two Ivy League schools right now. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe I'll go check it out. So I visited the campus at Cornell. And while I was there talking to people, I 
you know, which I was more just going because I'm like, I'm interested to see what an Ivy League campus looks like. Like, I know I would never get into school here, but I just kind of want to check it out if, you know, I'm being given this opportunity. And as I was talking to people there, I was like, if I apply here, I would probably actually get in, you know, and like they were looking at me like, oh God, if he applied here, he's probably going to get in because I just was not the kind of person that should be there. You know, and then I met with the recruiters from Columbia and they kind of told me the same thing. And, you know, like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to see what happens. So I applied for Columbia to finish my art degree. And I applied at Cornell to finish my business degree. And I decided I would let fate decide for me. You know, if I got into one, that's where I would go. If I didn't get into either, then, you know, I still have this associate's degree and Chipotle is always hiring. <laughs> so, you know, like, We'll, we'll see what happens. And um, eventually I heard back that I was accepted at Cornell and I was like, all right, well, I got in Cornell, I guess business it is, this is what I'll do. You know, and I was still looking at it from like a creative angle. Like my thought was I would go into business law and then eventually um, work with intellectual property law, you know, like working with artists and, you know, like trademarks and copyrights and whatever. Um, you know, and I didn't hear back from Columbia and I was like, all right, I'm going to get rejected there. Not a big deal. You know, Cornell came back, offered me a full ride scholarship. And I was like, okay, this is a no brainer. This is what I'm going to do. And then, then I got the call from Columbia saying that I got accepted there too. And I was just like, oh my God, like now I have to choose between the two of them. In the meantime, Cornell came back with an additional scholarship that would have paid for my housing and it would pay me to take any unpaid internships that I would do. I was like, okay, this sounds great. You know, I called Columbia and they're like, yep, your scholarship for your first semester is $8,000. <laughs> they're like, and there's no, no flexibility on that. That's what it is. And I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? And I was talking to uh, my cousin Jim about it. And he's like, if you can't decide between those two offers, you know what you want to do. And I was like, you're right. You know, like the dream has always been moved to New York, be an artist. And that's what I did. So Next thing you know, I'm packing up, I'm moving to New York, I'm working with some of the top artists in the industry and realizing that like, this is something that I could be a part of. And now here it is years later and I'm still plugging away, so. Themes of childhood seem to be a strong influence on your work uh, in the form of toys, comics, stuffed animals. I suppose even trophies could be added to this category. I know they're not specific. Oh, specific no, but yeah, absolutely. Objects, but but you can earn some in childhood. <laughs> Does yeah. the notion of childhood in general inform your creative voice or is it your own childhood that you're exploring or maybe a combination of both? I mean, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a little bit more complicated than just like boiling it down to like one thing or another because I think a lot of these objects can be viewed different ways. You know, and I feel I approach them differently with different things that I do. You know, in, in some aspects, the toys could represent your own childhood or it could represent a child rather than your specific childhood or, you know, like my story or the model story. Or I think, you know, it depends within the context of each piece. You know, I, I do a lot of collaborative work with models where, you know, I have a model come post for me and we talk very much about their history and, you know, like different things that have influenced them throughout their lives. And one of the things that I found really interesting, there was a gentleman that I worked with from like the Warren Youngstown area that, um, 
he was telling me when he was younger, his parents were really poor and they would live, you know, like they kept moving because they kept getting evicted from wherever there was, or wherever they were living. So when I went to pick him up, the first time I met him, he had me drive around the town where he was and he showed me basically like 30 different houses that he had lived in, in this town, you know, and he was like 25 years old. And, you know, it's like, okay, so, at, you know, in the middle of the night when you're packing up to move, what do you take with you? And he's like, yeah, that's, you know, you only take whatever's most important and you leave the stuff behind, you know, and he was talking about how, you know, there was like, oh, I wish I could have brought this toy with me, but there wasn't room in the car. So I had to stay behind. And, you know, like I had this, you know, T-ball trophy that I was so proud of and it had to stay behind, you know, so like using it in that aspect is very different than, you know, like me recreating a teddy bear that I had when I was younger. But toys are something that are kind of universal. We, we've all, we all had toys when we were kids, you know, like we all relate to them in different ways. A lot of us still have things from our childhood that we've hung on to, you know, not everything, but it's like this special item might be important to me. So I still have it. Yeah, I think, I think people just can relate to things that way. You know, the, the toys that I do use in my work, I try to make universal where it's not like, this is very specific to a certain time period. I like the things where it's like, yes, this could have been a toy that I had when I was a child, or it could be that I could be buying it for my child now, or it could have been something that my parents had when they were children that has been passed down, or someone else had this and then I bought it at a garage sale and I sold it at another garage sale and it's gone through generation after generation of child. Some of these objects have their own stories. So, you know, as opposed to, you know, that Cabbage Patch doll, if you look at that, you're like, okay, 1980s, you know, like there's a certain it's grounded in a certain time, whereas like some of these things are timeless, you know, like, like a teddy bear or, you know, even some of the like Fisher Price telephones or things, you know, that could have been anyone's. So. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about it in that regard of, of property, I suppose. Mm. Uh, whereas where you're talking about your friend, how you, you grab what you can and bring, bring it with you. I mean, when we're kids, we, we don't have, things. I mean, we, we have whatever these toys or whatever these, these small things we're able to accumulate and those become sort of part of us, part of your identity. I think that's why they're so important to you later or why you hang on to them because they're yeah. few things you really own. Uh, so it's an interesting notion to, to have them represented as that. In your work, particularly your portraits, there, there's a tantalizing combination of fragility and strength. Uh, there's a sort of combative, hard and soft masculinity going on in it, as I see it. Uh, your nudes especially are, they're bare and they're very male, but drawn in these veiny, swirly lines of multiple colors, like, like sort of almost like a sewn, they're sewn in a way without defining edges. And the result is a, is a real plush softness without hard lines that dictate form or give specific structure in a way. Uh, it's a really unique way of representing flesh as I see it. Uh, it gives the figures a sort of permeability to their environment that defies the notion of impermeable masculinity, as it were. Talk to me about the evolution of your, your line itself. Uh, it's shifted over the years, as, as I've known you, uh, from a blotted one to one that looks a bit like tiny rotary phone cords to one made of little spiders <laughs> and <laughs> one that seems to be sprouting roots. Uh, how has it developed over the years and, and what does it look like in your current work? So I don't know. I, I like to I like to play with different lines and different line quality and different 
ways of making the marks on the page. A lot of it just depends on like what works best for the piece at the time and what I enjoy doing at the time. I'm constantly experimenting. I'm, I'm actually working on a project right now, which is a series of 50 smaller drawings, all kind of interrelated, but playing with different, different types of lines and different pattern making techniques. And I, I think it's probably going to be released as like a book or something down the road once it's all completed. But I still have about 30 of them to finish up before we're at that point. So, you know, I'm still, um, I'm still kind of playing with that. I like the idea of playing with hard and soft, especially with like ideas of masculinity, just because everything's not so cut and dry as much as we, as a society wanted to be like, you know, the whole like idea of like man up and, you know, like men are tough and they show no emotion. And that's, that's not the case. And, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I work with a lot of models. I talk to them and I get, I get a good feel for like who people are and I try to represent them in a way that reflects who I've come to know them to be through the interview process while we're, you know, while they're modeling for me. I don't know. I really, I, I enjoy this type of mark making as well, where, you know, there's something really free about it. And I feel like, you know, especially like in some of the, like the swirlier line pieces where it's like, they almost feel like they're forming out of nothing, you know, like it's these strings coming out of nowhere and forming spider webs or, you yeah. know, I, I don't know what, I don't know what you would call them, but you know, when you get close up, they almost read as like the static on a TV set, the different colors playing off of each other. The drawings almost feel alive when you can see them in person, uh, which I really appreciate. There's something magical that happens in the studio when I'm doing them too, where, you know, like I build it color after color, almost like a CMYK printing process, you know, where like, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to start with a blue this time. And then, you know, I'm going to add this orange and then a green and, you know, like playing with the different colors to get to a flesh tone that I like. But, you know, the first color, you put the first color down and you're like, okay, I can see what the image is. And then the second color and you're like, okay, it's starting to look like something. And usually that fourth color, once it goes down, all of a sudden it becomes alive. All of a sudden something, it activates your eyes and things are moving around. And I guess for me, that's, I, I like doing it because that's exciting for me, that moment where it's like, aha. And it's something, it's something I guess that's only there for me too, because I'm the only one that experiences that because I'm the only one there as it's happening. And it's like, wow, look at this amazing moment. And it's all mine, you know, <laughs> like even, even when someone buys this piece and has it hanging in their home, like they see it and it's beautiful, but like, yeah, there's, there's that little moment that's really exciting that only I get to experience, which is fun. Yeah, I remember reading something similar to what you're talking about that Andrew Wythe experienced when he painted Christina's World, the, the painting of the woman in the foreground in the pink dress where her arm is real thin and looks Ooh. sort of strange and is cocked back and she's looking at a barn. It's that real famous painting. I remember reading that he had painted, because he did that dry brush technique, which was really tedious to do all those browns and browns and browns and yellows, yeah. and that he had the whole painting almost done, but then he put the pink in her dress down at the end. And he yeah. said when he did it, it just like blew him across the room. It just changed the whole painting and the whole thing. Yeah, uh, it, it's amazing what what those combinations of colors can do like that. And actually, this this leads into something next I wanted to talk about with you with regards to color. Uh, in some of your early work, the comic panels in particular 
there, there's a palpable influence of Warhol, Lichtenstein in, in the form of the, the subject matter itself being comic panels, though they, they differ significantly in mood and intent compared to those artists, uh, which really sets them apart. Specifically, the panels which you choose are usually of dramatic scenes or ones of really raw explosive emotion. And the subjects are painted with swathes of of really saturated color, uh, either uniformly or with uh, complementary colors, sort of like you were talking about. <clears throat> Give the pieces a, a, a pulsating aura-like communication of mood. Uh, mm -hmm. They seem to, to bleed the emotion they are conveying either in words or action. That's the way I've always seen them. They, they really mm -hmm. almost like a blush of color or like placing a piece of paper on blood or some sort of color and it spreads that way that that's the way they mm. feel to me when I look at them is there something about the these existing primary source panels from comics from the 30s or whatever that speak to you and impel you to reinterpret them to reflect your personal experience yeah a lot of a lot of that you know like the the comic panels that I was doing I feel if you were to take them all and rearrange them in the right sequence, they would pretty much be an autobiography. Um, I don't know that anyone would be able to put them together and read them that way other than me, but you know, like they, I, I feel most of them came from specific, you know, specific events in my life or, you know, feelings that I've had or, you know, for whatever reasons. So, you know, like, even though, even though they're like the, you know, the language of pop art, you know, they're emotional for a reason because I have an emotional connection to them, you know, and, and like I said, they, they tell a story and at the, at the time that I was making them, it was pretty much a tragic story. So, you know, like, I think that's why there's kind of like a sadness to them. And, you know, a lot of that was in that time period when I was, you know, like making this work, but I didn't know was I going to even keep continuing doing this because I was getting to the point where it's like you've been chugging away at this for so long and no one's seeing this and no one's you know what what is the point in this at this point in time but a lot of the things that I was doing with that became the foundation for things that have appeared in my later work you know like a lot of the things in those comics are what started leading me to some of these other images and patterns and the colors and you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the way that I build colors at my drawing now is really similar to the, you know, like I said, the CMYK, the four color printing that you would do in these old comics with the dots and things, you know, like looking at that and it's like, oh, this is how they built this, you know? And if you look at them, the, the dots aren't even necessarily the uniform dots that you think of, you know, some of them are more of like a star pattern or whatever. It, it's funny, for a while, I couldn't see, you know, like I would see the work that I was making now and I would look at these older pieces that I had done and I was like, you know, like, I feel like I have these completely separate bodies of work. And at one of my grad school interviews, actually, I had mentioned that to someone because I had showed some of those images and some of the drawings that I was doing. And I'm like, you know, like, I guess I don't know who I am as an artist, you know, like I've kind of got these separate bodies that I'm working on. And, um, the woman that was interviewing me, who later became one of my grad school advisors because it was at my SAIC interview, she's like, I absolutely see you in all of these. And I absolutely see the through line through all of these. And I can tell that they're all by the same artist because there are things in here that, you know, like 
even though you might not see them now, they all tie together. And then that became one of my big focuses while I was in grad school was like, okay, what are the important things in all of this and how do I recombine them into who I actually am as an artist? So yeah, it, even though it was, you know, like we're in these little studios in middle of nowhere, Ohio, working on this work, you know, like, it's like, that was definitely the foundation for the stuff that I'm doing now that's being shown in Chicago or Miami or, you know, like, which I don't know, it's kind of crazy. There's a lot of uh, space in your art, particularly your new art, I've, I've noticed compared to some of your old pieces. Uh, there's white space, there's the space filling the bodies of some of your figures, which contains particles of color or tiny bacteria-like shapes or unidentified matter that seems to be coalescing into something unknown. Uh, there's space in some areas that seem sacrosanct or preserved in order to maintain or complement the mystery of the subject. Compositionally, how do you approach a blank surface? Is the space in a piece as important as the objects you place within it? I mean, yeah, I think compositionally there always has to be a balance and you know, I think negative space is always just as important as the positive space in a piece. I'm, I'm a big fan of negative space. And that was one of the things when I was in grad school that people just didn't get when I first got there. And they're like, why is this page pretty much all white? And I'm like, I love it. Like this, this figure, it exists in a void, you know? And like, and they're just like, I, I don't get it. Like, it's this big white piece of paper with a couple scribbles on it. And I'm like, yeah, I love it. This is, <laughs> like, yeah, it's absolutely, this is what this is supposed to be. This isn't, I ran out of time or I got bored. Like, this is what I wanted it to be. And um, there were some people that responded really well to it. I found a lot of friends from Japan also really related to that. I found a lot of the Japanese students at school with me kind of got the same kind of ideas that I had. And um, I think they they also were dealing with some similar issues. You know, while I was in grad school, oil painting was like God. And the fact that I was not touching oil paint whatsoever, like no one could quite understand. And a lot of the, you know, there were, there were a couple of Japanese students that I was friends with that they also were super into like watercolor and they were facing the same kind of backlash where it's like, why aren't these oil paintings? And it's like, well, why does everything have to be an oil painting? You know, but they, yeah, they, they absolutely got it. And they're like, oh yeah, it's a void. It's, you know, like they're, they're existing in this void or they're coming out of a void. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I see this, you know? And now, you know, like, I, I don't use as much negative space or as much white negative space as what I was doing. Um, a lot of times I'll fill in the negative space with a pattern, but it's still basically negative space. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely just as important, you know, compositionally. The way I work now, I just keep layering things one on top of another on top of another because I'm mostly working with ink and it's a purely additive process. I basically add whatever's in the foreground and then just keep building behind it and behind it and behind it. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper as I fill in the space behind. I usually have an idea of a couple of the objects that are going to go in to a piece, but I like to leave it open where, you know, there's room to surprise myself. Like as you're working on something, I mean, most of my drawings, uh, if you look at them, you can tell I've 
got hundreds of hours in some of them. You know, I mean, a lot of them are seven foot tall by four foot wide and super intricately, you know, these tiny, tiny fine point marker marks made on it that, you know, like it takes me hundreds of hours to finish one of these. So like while you're working on it, you're like, okay, this is what this piece is. And then all of a sudden you're like, but wait, I have to add a peacock. And then, you know, then there's like a peacock in there that like you hadn't intended on, but it's like, well, there's a space for it and here it goes, you know? And, and, you know, and it's one of those, like, I don't know why he has to be here, but he has to be here. And then as you're like, you know, then you work on it longer. And then I, I can't tell you how many times I have these moments where it was like, you know, like I'm doing this piece and it's, you know, like, you know, like, I, like you said, a lot of my work explores like masculinity and it's like, and, but then I got to throw a peacock in and then it's like, but wait, obviously a peacock had to be in there because, you know, like there's a, you know, the sexual dimorphism, you know, where it's like the, you know, the males and the females of the species are, you can tell the difference between the two of them. And it's like, yeah, it had to be a peacock, you know, and someone's like, well, how do you know it's a male? And I'm like, it's a peacock. This is obviously a male peacock because the female peacock doesn't look like this. And it's like, oh my God, this is why I had to put a peacock in here, you know? And it's like, God damn it. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that while I was doing it? Like, I'm sure I did think of it, but like, it wasn't conscious until it was like on the paper and I was like fighting someone about it. And it's like, yeah, that's what this is. Let's see, that's what's great about leaving some room for things like that or room for, for, for later, uh, uh, later editions. As an author, I, I noticed that too. It's the argument against do you outward the argument of do you outline a story and have everything section yeah. where you know what's going to happen or do you just have an idea and jump into it and there are people that work in different ways but i find generally it's better i mean i, I have the idea i'll generally know where it's going but mm -hmm. i write it that way without having it plotted because like you're saying peacocks are going to show up and, yeah. and that's the way they show up you know if you sit there yeah plan out this is how this painting is going to be and and there's no room for anything and you have every inch of that space filled yeah you out on, on what may be the central element that just like you're saying popped into your head and now that made that piece I'm not saying that necessarily didn't in your yeah. but that it could it could be the deciding thing that that makes the piece yeah when I was in school I received a lot of backlash from certain people because they're like you don't you don't leave yourself room for happy accidents and there's no room for play and it's like well, there absolutely is. It's just not, you know, like, it's not like, oh, I finished this and then I decide I want to go over it and redo something. There has to be a certain intentionality to it, but there's still room for something to happen. And, you know, like working in a process that is so painstakingly time consuming, you're also constantly thinking of what is my next piece going to be? And, you know, like, my next drawing has already already been like reworked 50 times in my head before I put it to paper. And then it still comes out nothing like what I had envisioned it originally, because once I start working on it, things still change, you know? So, you know, I mean, there's, there's so room to have fun with it. There's so room to play, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's not the same method of working that a lot of artists use, you know, like, but I'm fine with it. I'm happy with how I work and, you know, like, I don't know. I guess my brain just works a little differently than most people and whatever. It works for me, you know, like. Yeah, everybody I mean, has their own process. It, it, seems, it seems like the most interesting work comes from that sort of process that you're describing though. When things surprise you and when you're hmm. able to somehow let the things 
that are in your mind coalesce and yeah. you know, it, it, in that moment. And then even then you're still honing and refining exactly what it means. But yeah, um, yeah it's one thing I think to have a total 100% idea of what it is. But like I said, e even when you do, you try to put it down, it's going to come out differently. And yeah, and that's what's fascinating about the process. And that's what makes interesting work in the end. Uh, your sculptures and installation work is is really original and distinctive. Your approach to it, the, the pieces themselves, uh, to me, they're really unique. There are, there are spray painted teddy bears that seem to be glowing via some internal light source. Uh, bag headed scarecrows with painted smocks blowing in the wind of a Midwest field. Uh, mantelpiece objects that seem to be woven from some sorts of plastic. These are just things, impressions I'm getting off of some things mm -hmm. on, on your site that I haven't seen in person. So I may be misconstruing some of this, but talk to me about your 3D work and how it complements, contrasts, feeds off of your 2D work. A lot of them first stemmed from me just thinking, okay, so these are the paintings I'm doing. What would they look like if I were to make something three-dimensional? You know, and it's like, okay, what do I do from this? And, you know, like like the teddy bear you were speaking of, that was something at the at the time I was doing a lot of, you know, really large spray paints, um, you know, these six by six canvases of these, you know, like spray paint pop art kind of pieces. But a lot of them had um like sculptural elements built into the canvas before I painted on them. You know, and it's like, okay, so I'm doing all the sculptural stuff anyway. What if I were to do just like my own sculptural piece? And at the time I was living in New York, I was sharing a studio with an absolutely amazing costume designer. At the time she was doing the costumes for Sleep No More. It's a big off-Broadway show. Also her, her father is a super famous photorealist painter, but she and I played really well off of each other as we would work, you know, like I'd be working on these paintings and she'd be sewing these, you know, like mummy costumes or something, you know, and we'd be listening to like the Pandora emo station and singing along at the top of our lungs. And, you know, and I was like working and I'm like, you know, what if I just made a big stuffed animal out of canvas and painted it? And I started thinking about the local library when I was a kid had this giant stuffed teddy bear that like kids would sit in his lap and put plug like a tape into him and he would like play you know like a story or like oh, music yeah. and they'd like, listen and you know I'm like I never got to sit in that teddy bear's lap because somebody was always there <laughs> you know like I never got to and I'm like okay so I'm gonna make my own teddy bear so I made this bear and you know like I mean he sat I mean he's like five foot tall you know like seated five foot tall so you know like standing he was probably closer to you know like nine eight or nine feet tall um you know and then I'm like okay and then I'm gonna spray paint this terrified child on it because you know like it's also kind of terrifying <laughs> and you know so I did that and it was like pretty awesome and then it was like okay what else can I do you know like because I I've been interested in sculpture and installation and so shortly after shortly after I completed that piece, I had moved back to Ohio to work on my grad school applications just because I needed somewhere cheaper to live because I couldn't afford to be in New York City and just be making work that I couldn't necessarily sell, which, you know, I mean, up to that point, the pop art paintings were selling pretty decently that I could like eat by a living off of that, like 
it wasn't anything fancy. I could not afford to do anything but like go to my studio and go home. But, um, you know, I was living in New York off of selling some paintings, but I knew if I was going to dedicate time to stuff that I couldn't necessarily sell, I couldn't be living in Manhattan. So I came back to Ohio and shortly, shortly after being here, I moved into my house in this little town of 600 people. And uh, within the first couple weeks of living here, I changed the color of my door from barn red to teal and got death threats from the neighbors because how dare I? <laughs> so then I created the piece that you were speaking of with the scarecrows where I, they basically, each one represents one of the seven deadly sins. And also um, each one represents one of the women from my mom's church group because I found out that some of them were behind the note that was hung on my door. So it was kind of like, ha ha ha. So I put these ugly, <laughs> not ugly, but ugly to them, scarecrows up in the field and was like, oh, look at yourselves, you know? And, oh, look, Aunt Shirley, there you are, you know? <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, I mean, that was kind of reactionary to what was going on in my life at the time. And yeah, I just kind of started enjoying it. Now, you know, like, I like the idea now of the drawings that I do spilling out from the, you know, from the page onto the wall. So a lot of times I won't even necessarily frame a piece. I'll pin it to the wall and then draw the frame on the wall around it, maybe a wallpaper pattern behind it. Maybe I'll hang another sculptural piece in front and they became, they become these other, this two-dimensional drawing is now an installation in its own, you know, because the space becomes the actual work, not just the piece hanging in it, which I find really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel all along I felt that even though I was making these two-dimensional pieces that they were always meant to be part of some type of installation. And now I'm just getting the chance for that to finally manifest itself. What are some of the primary influences in your life and work? Um, okay, so I've got a lot. And a lot of the things that influenced me, you know, like the artists that influenced me, their work is nothing like mine. But I think if you really study the way that I work and the way that I look at things, there's a lot of similarities. So um, like with my drawings, a lot of times people will look at them and think that like, oh, Kahinde Wiley. And like, yes, there's patterns and male figures and things, but like, I, you know, like the themes behind what we're doing is very different. It's to me, the artist that I think that I'm probably most closely related to is An Kawara, which, you know, I think most people would not get right away. But, um, you know, I mean, he had a very prolific career. He was constantly working, you know, the major body of work of his is he would get up in the morning and he would prepare a canvas, paint it the same color as the day before, and just, paint the date as it appeared, the text font of the newspaper for whatever city that he was living in or, you know, in at the time, you know, if he was traveling or whatever. And that's very similar to the way that my process is, is, you know, like there's always something to be working on. I wake up in the morning and I start drawing and, um, you know, it's very labor intensive. My, my process is very much almost more about the work itself for me, like me doing the creating than what the final product is. I had someone once question me if it was almost like a mandala, you know, where like I start this major project and I spend hundreds and hundreds of hours on it. And as soon as I finish a drawing, it gets rolled up and 
either sent off to a gallery or put away in a box somewhere until it gets shown. And I don't think of it again, I just start on the next one and keep moving on to another and another. And my process is almost very much about this constant work and always having something to be working on, which, you know, I, that's kind of how I relate to him so closely. I also, when I was an undergrad, I worked with uh, Rear Crit Tier Venetia, which he was a major influence on me on how to look at the world differently. You know, he was teaching a um, advanced culture course that I took, and I was the only undergrad in the class with a bunch of grad students at the time, which a lot of which are right now some pretty big names in the art world as, you know, like up and coming artists themselves, you know, and I'm taking this course with him and rather than making any work in the class, we just went around and did all these like crazy experiences. So like one day we went upstate New York and picked apples and then came back to, at the time he was showing with uh, Gavin Brown Enterprises. So we went to Gavin Brown's Brownstone in Harlem the next week and baked apple pies with the apples that we picked and shared them with a bunch of uh, visiting art students from, um, I think they were from Belgium. I don't know, it was like another class that was in, you know, like on this trip to New York. And so like, you know, this class came and they ate these apple pies that we made for them. And we all sat around and showed slides of our work. And one of the big things that Rickert said to me while we were in this class is never take the subway, always take the bus. Because, you know, he said, you'll see some stuff down in the subway. And yes, you see all the crazy stuff that happens in the subway, but like, you really experience the city by like being in the bus and watching all the businesses that you pass and the people that you pass. And, you know, it was, it was very much just about experience everything that you're doing at the time that you're doing it and take in everything that you can and observe what everyone else is doing and let that influence you. And that's something that's stuck with me now all these years. It's always like, always take the bus, you know, like, I could fly somewhere or, you know, I mean, it might take me, you know, 12 hours longer, but maybe it makes sense to take the train and see what happened. So, I mean, he was, a, he was a major influence. Another artist that I get a lot of influence from uh, is Reva Lair. Uh, she's a painter out of Chicago. She was a visiting artist that came my, I believe my second semester of grad school. And she and I just instantly fell in love with each other you know, the first time we met and, you know, like every time I would run into her in the city, it's just like big hugs and like, oh my God, I love you. You know, like um, she does these figurative paintings, mostly uh, queer and disabled people. And we've had this really great ongoing conversation about the idea of consent and using models in your work. And I think we both approach it differently where like we want to make work that the models that are posing for us are proud of and are happy to be a part of. And, you know, like, I mean, it's kind of like how they speak of sexual encounters now where you want the enthusiastic yes, not just like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll do this when it comes to consent. It's like, you want someone to like be 100%. Yes, I want to do this. I'm really excited and have them be just as happy at, of the final product. So, you know, I mean, she and I've had, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other overlap within our process and, you know, within our own separate lives. And, but she's absolutely phenomenal. If no one is, you know, if people haven't seen her work yet, look it up. She actually just put a book out called Gollum Girl. It's her memoirs of growing up in the hospital with spina bifida. 
yeah, she's absolutely amazing. Musical influences, yes, music influences my work some. Oddly, I really enjoy polka music, which is probably not what people want to hear, but I listen to a lot of Frankie Yankovic in the studio, which used to drive people crazy when I was in school. But yeah, I, I really into that. I also, I, as Josh, you can attest to, I absolutely love Leslie and the Wise. And I still listen to a lot of her music. And, you know, like, I, I've got a little bit of Midwest diva in me too. So, you know, like, I, I don't know, it kind of it kind of fits with what I'm doing, even though you wouldn't look at the work and say, oh, yeah, these two go hand in hand. But yeah, she's definitely been a major influence over throughout the years. So what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on presently? Yeah, what's next is always a good question. I've, I've got a ton of work that I want to do on the studio. I've got a ton of drawings that are in some, you know, some form of completion or another. I'm working on some 3D printed pieces. I'm working on some, you know, drawings done with a 3D printing pen. I've had quite a bit of success with some drawings that way that have shown quite a bit through your various galleries and art fairs and whatever. I'm working on a fairly large sculptural piece that should be shown at Zola Lieberman Gallery in Chicago later on this year. I don't have the exact dates of that, you know, that show yet. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I've got a series of like 50 some drawings that I'm working on that may turn into a book or even possibly like a deck of playing cards or something by the time they're completed. Once the pandemic is done, I really want to take a period of time and do some traveling. Most of my work comes from collaborating with different, you know, different models and such. And I want to just be able to take some short trips throughout the Midwest and meet random people and random cities and hear their perspective on things. And then do some shopping at the local thrift stores and see, you know, like what items in their community might exist that I'm not used to seeing in my community and how do I turn them into like a sculptural piece or, you know, another, you know, another element of the drawing that I created of this person. You know, a lot of what I do, I like to take things from, you know, like both their personal life, their personal life and my, you know, like my own story and kind of combine them together where every piece is not just partially their biography, but it's also, you know, a self-portrait of myself, even though I'm not in it, and it's somewhat autobiographical. I mean, that was something I've been planning on doing for a long time. And, you know, with the pandemic and being trapped at home, you know, I've just been drawing, you know, the squirrels and deers and, you know, different weasels and things that show up in my yard, <laughs> you know, because you can't really go anywhere. But, um, a lot of turkeys where you are, as I recall. Oh, <laughs> yes. A lot of wild turkeys, bald eagles. We're lousy with bald eagles here. <laughs> um, feral cats that fall in love with my cat and I let them all move in. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. And I mean, ultimately, I'm, look, I'm looking to move out of the community where I am now. Just, you know, like, I would like to be back in a bigger city. This, this move kind of happened you know, I came back here shortly after grad school to help my mom downsize. Um, you know, we sold off the farmhouse after my dad passed and we just had to get it ready to sell and, you know, get her moved and everything. And because of the pandemic, I've been here a lot longer than what I had planned. You know, my ideas of where I was going to go and what I was going to be doing have changed greatly because, you know, the world is now different from what it was a year ago. So, 
I'm just kind of leaving myself open and seeing what opportunities come my way. I, I'm absolutely confident that something will come up in the next few weeks or months that will show me the right direction to go. And I'm just gonna leave myself open. And a lot of amazing doors have opened for me because of this, you know, this kind of philosophy of like, okay, we'll see what happens. And, you know, like, had I not been receptive to them when they presented themselves, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. So I'm just, just waiting to see what happens next. Well, Brian, it's been wonderful to catch up and hear about the evolution of your work. Uh, always interesting to see what you're working on and uh, best of luck in the next, the next move. I'm sure something is coming your way. The work is fantastic and, and it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, it's been great talking to you too. Thanks for having me. Thank you.